This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome to Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. And today we have a guest, Timo Rantalainen, Doctor of Sports Sciences, who currently works at Gerontology Research Center in University of Jyväskylä. And Timo is doing research in bone, muscle interactions, and physical activity assessed with wearable sensors. Really nice to have you here, Timo. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Oli. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and I have known you for quite a long time, uh, from the student times already, and, and I remember always that you like the mathematics and, and algorithms. What is your interest? Are you are you making algorithms now, or what, what do you do on a daily basis? Well, well that's precisely what I do. I'm, I'm a raging nerd. Um, pretty much all I do is bang away on my keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so I, I heard you, you got the funding right now. What kind of funding did you did you receive? Right, so this is um, this is actually really big news for me. Um, I got uh, funding from the Academy of Finland, which is the biggest funding um, source um, we have in here in Finland. And I got a Academy Fellowship, which is the, the best kind of um, grant you can get. So it's a salary for myself for five years, and then I get to recruit a you know, PhD candidate and a postdoc, pretty much for five years. So it, it, it's really, really an excellent source of funding. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. Yeah, I I know that researchers they keep applying funding, applying and actually failing most of the time, especially especially in certain fields and certain countries where the funding is there's not that much funding. So I. I can really feel that you are you're happy, and this is this is a big thing for your career. Absolutely, oh, I'd, I'd actually go as far as say funding is scarce anywhere you go. Competition is very hard. So um, I've only worked in Finland in Australia, but in both of these countries, your success rate is anywhere between seven to twenty percent. So one in five, and that's at the high end. So mm. it's um, it's difficult to get funding wherever you go. In my case, it took nine years to land this big funding since I graduated. So it's yeah. It's a rare treat. Yeah. So you so you like mathematics. So it, if it's five percent, is it just that you apply twenty times and you guarantee it succeed? Yeah, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. That's that's the way um, probabilities work. But it's not far off though. So I I would say that I have put in at least thirty applications over my career, and I've I've landed I think maybe six or seven. Not, some some of them small, but nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. So it, it might work. You just need to apply, and, and somebody likes likes your idea. Well, that's that's precisely what it is. Someone needs to get excited about your the idea proposed. Um, and, and unfortunately, there is um, an element of luck in the process. So that's been shown in studies as well. When we studied who are the people who get funded versus those who did not get funded, and we look at their research output, they have how many times they cited. All of those you can't really tell them apart. All right. But, yeah. But that's, it's this, which is, so we're in a good position in that sense. So we've got a sufficient number of highly qualified people who know how to do research, 
and therefore we don't have enough artists to support all of them. Mm. So you need to have some some new idea at least to to get the funding. So what what is your your research about the new pro- project? So as, as you might expect in this particular podcast, uh, I work in um, looking at physical activity, and so what mm. I asked funding for was to explore the idea that instead of looking at whether physical activity is good for your health, um, we kind of turn the tables a little bit, and um, I'm asking the question of can we tell something about your physical state by looking at how active you are in your daily life. And the idea is, so it stems from very basic research on roundworms, um, and this, this was published somewhere in the very early 2000s, um, where they looked at the motility of roundworms. And they found out, and so this is a very interesting species because they're genetically identical, all of them. So therefore it's not genetics that determines their longevity. Um, but nevertheless, there's massive variation in how long they live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so what was shown was that the motility of these roundworms predicts if they're going to die or not. So the, the roundworms that were still active, let's say, 30 days after they, they were born, mm-hmm. they, they were going to remain to be alive. But if they didn't really move around at all, they were going to die off quite soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is the, um, that's kind of the framework. I wanted to, or I took in this application. So I'm asking whether in humans the, the same is true. So if you are active today, are you then likely to be, to be alive, let's say, two years down the track? Of course, I'm not going to be able to answer that question during my mm-hmm. uh, my project. But nevertheless, that's kind of the framework um, I went with. So, yeah. so to, and I guess I should have started with that I'm working with uh, older individuals. Mm. So this is in gerontological research. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's the framework I'm um, currently working. Yeah. Yeah. And how old do you plan to have your participants? So I've got three groups. So this is actually a part of a larger grant. Um, the professor I'm working with at the moment, Diana and got from the European Research Council. And so we've actually completed the baseline measurements um, just at the end of last year. Mm where we had um, a group of 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds, and 85-year-olds, mm. and, and their population representatives, so they were randomly all. So we had the population register, and we ran them up, and whoever signed up for our study, they're in our study, and, and therefore their population representative. Mm. Yeah, and and do you plan to follow them for more years, or do you just do it cross-sectional, or how, how do you plan to do your... Your study. Right, so and, and so that's what I got the funding for is the follow up. So we got the baseline data finished uh, at the end of last year. Right. And I asked uh, funding for four year follow up. So we're going to whoever had, um, so, so first of all, the, the whole population we have sampled today is a thousand people. Mm. But out of those thousand people, 493, I think, or something akin to that signed up to wear accelerometers on them for mm-hmm. seven days. And so we had two concurrently more accelerometers, one on the thigh and another on the thorax. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those 493, we ring up in four years time and ask them to come back for repeating or replicating the measurements we did um, just last year. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's very interesting. So I lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah, so it's it's quite easy to see that if somebody's in really bad health and they are bedridden, they don't move much, and there's much 
uh, higher likely uh, likeliness that they will they will die or or not survive. So, do you think it will go all the way to the continuum of physical activity that the ones who are really active they still have like much more left life left than the others who are moving a little bit less? Or what? What do you predict will be the? Well, that, that's a really good question, and that's um, um, I don't think we know the answer to that at this stage. But that's actually kind of the what's driving me in this physical activity research. Why I hope to find it interesting is. For a whole uh, range of different medical conditions like uh, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, or, or mild cognitive decline, um, heart disease, really, really most of our chronic conditions. Mm. If we knew that someone's going to develop a chronic condition two years ahead of time, we, we would actually be able to prolong or, or delay the onset of the medical condition by maybe a year, half a year, anywhere between half a year to maybe even up to two years. It's particularly with type 2 diabetes, we got pretty strong evidence that by being physically active, by monitoring your diet, you will be able to postpone the onset of the disease proper. Mm, yeah. And so and that's why I'm interested in physical activity as a marker. So, so what, what we have at the moment is we are unable to predict who is going to develop Pre-clinical conditions from a healthy state. Mm. So, so that's something we cannot do with with any degree of certainty. Mm. Uh, but perhaps there are some early changes in your behavior, some early changes in it. It could be um, your metabolism. It could be anything really. So, what I'm interested in is because of my background in sports, and, and that's the thing I can do is I can physical activity using exercises. So that's what I'm concentrating on. But what I'm hoping is that there's something in your behavior, maybe it's something in your gait, um, maybe your gait becomes more complex, and we can, we can return back to that later on why that might be a marker. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if there is a some sort of indicator that you are heading into trouble today, mm -hmm. if we then target you and intervene with your behavior, your diet, uh, your sleeping patterns, whatever it is, and we're, we're able to postpone the onset of the clinical condition by even half, by half a year. That, that's um, a half a year of active life you would not have without this capability. And, and so that's kind of um, why I find it an, a worthy topic to spend mm. my time on. No, it, it sounds very, very relevant. So do you think this, this, what variables will be the predictors? Do you think it will be the light activity, moderate? vigorous activity or do you think it will be a, a pattern of walking that it's maybe not symmetric or what do you think will be the predictors, the best predictors of, of health? Well, that, that's a really, really good question. And again, one I don't have an answer to. Yeah. So I guess the tradition of physical activity research has been a questionnaire. You've been asked whether you do uh, physical exercise or not. And so that's where we started from. Then um, someone realized that we can actually use accelerometers to start getting getting the same or answering the same question with objectively measured data. So it doesn't depend on the individual doing the measurement. And and then um, I'd say maybe maybe the last 10, 15 years we've realized that that there may be or well, there's more to it. So we, we need to look at the patterning of physical activity. Uh, up to to me, uh, a good example of why patterning might have an effect. Uh, it comes down to physiology. So what we know of bed rest or immobility, 
is that you only need a very short time of inactivity and you start losing your muscle, you start losing your ability to drive the muscle with your brain, you start losing your um, connective tissues, you start losing your bones. So even just a one week period of, of complete bed rest and mm. you're starting to see this loss of function. So then, then you'd go back to looking at the way people accumulate their physical activity. Mm. Maybe you're a weekend warrior. So you do, you do, um, you go jogging on a, on a Saturday, and then maybe you go pedaling on your bike um, on a Sunday. Mm. And then the rest of the week, you, you work in the office, you don't really do anything for five days. Is this going to be beneficial to your health? What happens if you change your habits and you actually, instead of doing two big bouts of exercise, you did a little bit of exercise every single day? Mm. So the total amount of minutes accumulated in a week would be exactly the same. But would it be the same physiologically, or would it be the same for your health? Mm. Uh, I think there's a good reason to believe that physiologically, if you've got very long periods or, or multiple days of inactivity, that's going to start to affect your physiological state negatively, mm. compared to breaking it up with a bad exercise yeah. Yeah. intermittently. Yeah, I think clearly physiologically it's not the same. The the question is whether it's whether the effects are a kind of close how close they are. Right, of, right. Co- of course it's different. It's different stimulus. If you go go for a short run today, tomorrow versus in the weekend, of course it's it's different. But how different is it and right. how different is the effect? And I, I remember reading something about rehabilitation research that they had like, I think it was maybe patients with the ACL reconstruction or maybe osteoarthritis, I don't remember, but then they were looking like their physical activity and, and the ones who were doing fine and the ones who were not doing that well, the physical activity was the same. But when, when they actually looked more closely, they could see that the bouts under 10 seconds and then the very long walking bouts were totally different. So basically, uh, the ones who were not doing doing well, they were avoiding like really short walks. Maybe they had to like they had some pain when they started, and then the pain got back when they were continuing for a longer time. So there was there was clear that when you start to look the data just more closely, you can actually find quite interesting markers. Even on average, everything looked looked the same. So I think it could be same with this this that when you just look closely enough, there's something interesting in the data. Right. Well, that's, that's I think that's a really good example of sort of a chance finding. I'm not sure that you'd necessarily hypothesize that this is going to be the case mm-hmm. when you start your study. And, and that's why we have to do these cross-sectional studies where we just explore. So what, what do we see in the population at large? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that work has been done, but to me there's a lot more that we need to do even in the cross-sectional space of just looking at what's the state of people living in the community right at this moment before we can really start kind of identifying the things that make a difference like you said mm. so um, being able to identify someone who's going to who has a good prognosis on their ACL tear after it's been repaired versus someone who doesn't have a good prognosis this this will make a big difference for the individual so we know that, um, particularly for the ACM, uh, let's use that example. If, so it is very common that you develop a knee osteoarthritis in the long term, 
this may be driven by changed um, mechanical load. And if we can identify it early on, we can then intervene and potentially prevent that um, osteoarthritis from developing. Mm, yeah, and and I could imagine that some disease conditions you can maybe see something in the acceleration. You you can detect really closely how the leg actually moves, whether there's some sort of shaking or or something. So I think you could even even detect some some disease conditions when you just find the correct uh, variables to look from from the data or what do you think right i'll actually take this segue to back to um, what i was talking about oh, with when i mentioned the complexity of gait so mm -hmm. so a completely different variable we're looking at uh, but, but i like this particular example because there's a pretty good evidence to show that this actually works and so this is for cognitive impairment for mild cognitive impairment now there's kind of two parts to it. So first of all, walking is to an extent automated mm. in, in humans. Certainly it's, it's pretty much fully automated in cats. So if you take a cat and cut their spinal cord, you can still make the cat walk. So you know that there's no volitional control required. Mm. Humans have the same networks. It's not, they, they, they're not as strong, but nevertheless we have the networks. So walking is considered an activity where we need a little bit of volitional control, uh, but, but it's, it's relatively easy. So we can then undertake another task. Let's say coming backwards or talking to a mate while walking. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's, what was discovered, and I, found this, I thought this was um, a really interesting way of finding out something that's really kind of, when, when you look back to it, it it's obvious that this, that's the way it works. But what happened was um, geriatrics, so people or medical professionals who work with older individuals, found out that one of the more effective ways of detecting early Alzheimer's is by walking with someone and asking them a question. And if they stop, then mm. that's when you're concerned. And, and so it comes down to this idea that we have a single processor, our brain, mm. and if part of that processor is, is being used to walk you, then if you add the load by, by adding a second task, so it's called the dual task parallel, mm. um, then your walking may become disturbed. And if your if your capacity is is diminished to an extent where you can't undertake the second task, which is, which is talking in this case, then you have to stop. Otherwise, you'll fall over. And, and um, do you think it's it's about the capacity of the brain or the fact that you need to do the walking? It's not automatic, and you need to do the walking. And then when somebody asks you a question, you don't have any more free capacity in the brain. So do you think it's because you, you really need to actively be walking and thinking of walking or that your capacity in the brain is, is diminished? I, I think it's, it's kind of both. All right. So, so but, but the fact that we do have to have volitional control over our walking it enables us to use this technique. Mm. Because otherwise, we, if we didn't have any cognitive load from walking, then it shouldn't be affected by, yeah. by asking a question. I guess now circling back to the variables we're interested in. Yeah. So, so what happened with this was this phenomenon was um, found and then people were doing gait analysis. And with gait analysis, you can look at the mean step length, mean step velocity and so forth. But you can also look at the variability of gait. Mm. So if I take a um, stride that is 1.5 meters long now, and then my next step is 1.4 meters. Now there has been a variability in my stride length. Mm. Um, and we can quantify how much of the 
variability we have. And turns out that healthy people have less variability in their gait than those who have cognitive, um, mild cognitive impairment, or those who have Parkinson's, or those who. So there's many um, clinical conditions that affect gait variability, but the cognitive uh, impairment is one of them. Yeah. And now, when we add the second task, walking and then talking at the same time, or counting backwards, is what's quite often used. Uh, turns out that the increase in variability is higher in those who have cognitive impairment or have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm actually currently testing whether we can go further back to a more preclinical state of cognitive decline, which isn't yet cognitive impairment. Um, and, and can we take the difference between those who are, who are completely normal, don't have any complaints about their memory, to those who complain or are worried about their memory? Maybe that someone's, um, <clears throat> or maybe they realize that they started forgetting things. Mm, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And so, so that's now gate variability is interesting for, for that reason. There's other reasons as well, but that's one of the reasons why gate variability is interesting. It may be a preclinical marker of, of um, impending cognitive impairment. And again, for cognitive function, we know that if we do cognitive training, it will delay the onset of cognitive impairment. Mm. So, so that's, and, and again, that's circling back to what I was saying about why I think this is meaningful. That, that's one of the reasons So we have some evidence for particular clinical conditions that we can actually postpone um, the clinical onset if we know about them in beforehand. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibium, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibium has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's really interesting the, the thought about that it's kind of the same energy that we are using for, for example, walking. And thinking, and I've been I've been testing it. After I I read about it, I was testing like that. If you go, if you're running up the hill, and you push yourself quite hard, it's it starts to get impossible to think anything else. And then you slow down. Then you can think something simple. And then when, <laughs> then you, when you slow down for a walk, then you can start thinking more. And then when you speed up again, it's like there's just no space for thinking. Oh, that, that, that's an interesting concept. I don't think it's been talked about uh, in those terms, but I think that's an interesting concept of you have to actually consciously be volitionally pushing yourself when, when you're working hard. No, it, it, I, I, I've been testing it myself yeah. quite a bit, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it works like that. You, right. you, you should try it going uphill. And then I've been thinking also the same, that when you're actually cycling on an ergometer, it's like if I don't concentrate all the time that keep going, I kind of slow down really a lot, which doesn't happen as much in the running. So I think maybe we are more designed for running, like my legs know how to run better than cycle, because for especially ergometer cycling, I really need to all the time think that keep cycling, 
if I if I just get get drawn to my thoughts, I almost stop. Right. Yeah. So I I don't know if, if this is also related to that, but you should you should test this by yourself. I think that's, it's really yeah, that's interesting. an interesting thought. Uh, so the I mentioned the dual task paradigm. That's kind of a keyword mm. for what we use in gate analysis. But that's a really interesting thought. So first of all, we don't have a real observatory for pedaling because that's not the way we um, we do locomotion. We mm. do walking and running, mm. and we have reflex circuitries for those. So yeah. so that could, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. But then, so what happened if we did dual task pedaling? I'm, I'm not entirely sure if that's been tested or not. Yeah, maybe you have a new new idea for your research that actually, if you take some tasks which we are not designed as much, that how does it the good thing about bicycle um, ergometer is we can track the uh, pedal cranks mm. with very high degree of accuracy. So mm. that this is a big challenge in gait analysis. It's a complex phenomenon. And what we can do is, or oh, we limit it by the fact that it's so complex. So we could be measuring joint angles. Mm. We could be looking at the distance from heel strike to the next heel strike. This just a really large number of different variables we could be looking at, mm. which is an issue because then it becomes difficult to decide what what we actually look at. But mm. if we were looking at the crank velocity, crank angular velocity, now this becomes much more simple because it's just one variable we're looking at, and we can start plotting the previous um, stroke to the next stroke and so forth, and, and we kind of make it simpler. Mm. Yeah, that's true. There's no balance component or yeah. any, any other which would distract. So so now you have the accelerometers on the thigh and thorax, right? Yep. Yeah, and and do you actually analyze them like together that you kind of look interaction? Basically, the other one is looking the the movement of the body mass, and the other one is looking the acceleration of the of the leg. So are you actually do you plan to analyze them them together or are they analyzed independently? Well, they they could be analyzed either way. Um, and we, we will, of course, do this. So I guess we'll step, take one step back. So what, what we typically take from accelerometry is, is the counts, and, and we divide them into categories of uh, sedentary behavior, light activity, medium, and vigorous activity, or moderate, moderate and vigorous, sorry. And so that's, of course, something we can do from the thorax. We can do it from the thigh. There isn't an equation for the thigh that you can find from the literature. So, so we calibrated it on the treadmill, so we asked people to walk at different velocities mm. and then just fitted a linear uh, fit onto it and, mm. and then uh, coupled that with their uh, oxygen consumption that we measured as well and, and decided on the thresholds for these different categories. So that's, that's one thing we are going to do. We are going to take a look at the minutes, how, how are they accumulated. But the other thing we are really interested in, and this is why you actually would like to have two accelerometers on the individual is posture. So when we now use these concurrent records, mm -hmm. we can take a look at whether the thigh was um, horizontal or if it was upright. So of course, if it's horizontal, you're either lying down or sitting. Mm -hmm. And if it's upright, you're, you're standing up. So you might be walking, you might be running, whatever, but at least you're upright. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for thorax. So from thorax, you can figure out whether you're lying down versus sitting or standing. Mm. So, so with either, either one of these sensors um, in isolation, you cannot tell apart lying down and sitting or sitting and standing. But when you combine these two sensors, 
Mm. Now we are able to, with high confidence, say that they are either lying down, sitting, or standing up. Mm. And then the, the standing up time, you can then further divide into just standing around and then walking, and, and that's going to be based on the amount of acceleration we see. So if there's very little acceleration, they're standing um, in one place, and, and the more acceleration we observe during, during upright, the, the more vigorous activity they're undertaking. Mm -hmm. and, and you said that you did a, a protocol on the treadmill. So do you, did you do like individual calibration for all of them with the... <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, no, no, we did not make an individual calibration. Uh, so, so, and that's, the norm is not an individualized calibration for physical activity. The, the way you, you, you find, so there's multiple ways of figuring out how vigorous physical activity you're undertaking. So first of all, the under, underlying idea is all based on energy consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if we just lying down, that, that requires one met, so one multiple of um, your basal metabolic mm -hmm. rate. Um, standing up is about 1.5, and then you go to walking and running plus now. And so and this this is how we de define sedentary behavior. So sedentary behavior is anything less than 1.5 mm -hmm. multiples of your metabolic rate yeah. while, while at rest. Uh, three minutes is the threshold for uh, moderate, and six minutes is the threshold for vigorous physical activity. And now what we've done is we've had an accelerometer typically at the, on the waist. In our case, it was on the thorax or on the thigh. And we need to figure out how many times your metabolic rate are you consuming at this mm -hmm. time in order to, mm -hmm. to categorize a particular minute, yeah. which is uh, a tall order. <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, it's very easy to see how you go wrong, entirely wrong. So we've got an um, accelerometer on the thorax, and we're pedaling a bicycle. There's, there's very little accelerations on the thorax, mm -hmm. but you're actually consuming a lot of energy. So this, this is a massive issue to begin with, even if it was individualized. But then going back to the way we actually do go about this business is we uh, recruit a population and we ask them to undertake a battery of different activities mm. and we simultaneously measure their energy consumption. Mm. Um, the battery of different um, activities that are undertaken varies from study to study, but very typically it is only going to be walking on a treadmill, which mm. of course is not reflective of the way we, what we actually do yeah. in the world. And but, but it's by necessity. This, we just don't have... Oh, of course, we could record just, just a full day of physical activity uh, concurrently with um, oxygen consumption and the accelerometer in place, and then do some sort of fit. So is it now going to be a linear fit? Is it going to be a non-linear fit? Mm. Uh, all, all these questions are questions that we don't have correct or incorrect answers for. Yeah, it's it's a little bit demanding protocol to wear the mask full day because yeah. eating gets a little bit difficult with the, yeah. with the mask on. We did actually 12 hours. I, I also wore the mask for 12 right. hours. It, it's just like you took it off for a moment and stick in the food and then and put the mask back on. So it's, it's right. not, not... But great. even with that, so it's not individualized. It's never going to be individualized for hundreds of people. Mm. Even if you had all of these massive data in the background, you still find that the individual values, individual um, fits of the data, they are not the same. They're, they're definitely not the same between individuals. Mm. Um, and so, so that's a major caveat in physical activity research in the first place. 
yeah. like, which is one of the reasons why we're interested in posture. So we can now start supplementing the acceleration counts or, or how much acceleration there was over a particular period of time and couple that with, with the posture. Mm. Um, and, and that can kind of refine our estimate of the energy being consumed. Another reason is I'm working with older individuals and it's been realized over the last, let's say, 10 years that older individuals, of, of course, we always knew that older individuals are less vigorous in their, in their activities, they walk mm. slower, they do a lot less running than younger individuals. But we kind of realized that this actually has indications on whether we consider a particular amount of activity as measured by an accelerometer beneficial for their health or not. Mm. So, so they may be incapable of producing those vigorous, those accelerations that correspond to vigorous physical activity as defined in young adult population in six minutes. Mm. But nevertheless, they may be driving their their body in a way that actually goes all the way to their maximum capacity. And that's really what you need. physiologically what you need in order to start triggering adaptations is that you actually that you utilize the energy cycles um, of the cell. Mm. Mm. So so that and this is fundamentally issue in physical activity research is what we measure is accelerations, but it tells you nothing about how hard the person is subjectively speaking working so whether they're mm. close to their maximum capacity or if this is just a walking park yeah so basically for older people it might be that their maximum capacity doesn't reach the vigorous intensity activity precisely, yeah. precisely. yeah so yeah that makes a big big difference so you would need kind of some kind of individual determination of of what is their maximum like for a top athlete vigorous intensity activities is not much They can actually do it for a long time. Some of the probably the best trail runners can do it for 24 hours. Precisely. And oh, then, it, then some at, at ease as well. <laughs> at ease, yeah. yeah. I, I actually saw the, the Julian Jornet's video. He he did like a record run of 50 mountaintops or something in in 11 hours or something. And I saw a video of it, and I was like, wow. But then they showed like after the run, he went there and he couldn't eat even a banana. Oh, right. Like he, he almost like he couldn't just get like one small slice of banana in. And I was like, yeah, even he, he feels horrible after. Yeah. <laughs> I felt a little bit good. Like but that. that's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it looked like so easy to run 11 hours up and down the mountains for him. Yeah. But it seemed that he got tired. So in the, in the end or afterwards at least. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's very interesting the, that it's different for the older people uh, that maybe they don't reach vigorous intensity activity at all. How how do you think this will affect your your analysis of the data? How do you do you do you plan to have any any tricks? Uh, any any develop anything new for this that it would kind of be more better suited for the for the older individuals do you need to divide it with the more categories than light moderate and vigorous or, or do you have any plans for this well that's that's one of the things we will do is instead of using just four categories you know it's, it's a histogram so histogram is where we take a um, an array of numbers and we, we take a look at let's say the number is 10 mm. we then categorize it into one of the, I call it beans, 
mm. in, in my Instagram. So we've got a bin from zero to five, from five to 10, from um, 10 to 15. So this, this number 10 would go into the bin from five to 10. Mm. And so that, that's what we do at the moment with those four um, activity categories or one, one of them being non-activity for Synergy. So instead of doing that, we just take a, a time. What I actually do is I'll divide the, the spectrum of accelerations from zero to 2.5 Gs. But, but, but even in reality, in all the others, you, the maximum value you will see is 0.7, but that's besides the point. Mm. I'll take the range from zero to 2.5 and um, divide that into equal bins in, in 100 um, portions. Mm. And the, the number could be anything. I find that 100 is sufficient. So you, you're already starting to see um, a, a moon's view of what actually went on during the day with 100 bins. Mm. So, so that's one of the things we would do. The, the other one is, I'm actually, like, again, going back to the idea of motility or mobility being an indicator of your kind of vigor or, or your how much you have you've got, um, left in the tank. Mm. So it, it may be that it suffices to look at the absolute accelerations. And if you're incapable of producing absolute accelerations, that might be a marker that you're not going to be able to live a, a life that's still of high quality. So that's one, one kind of viewpoint to it. Um, and then we, we already briefly touched on, on the posture. So one of the things we can do is let's forget about the intensity of the activity. Let's just take a look at whether you're lying down, whether you're sitting, whether you're standing, mm. or whether you're walking or being more active. Mm. And so that's, that's, again, physiologically, the fact that you're walking um, may start triggering some positive adaptation. So it doesn't matter if you're walking vigorously or not. It suffices that you're walking. Um, mm. But not entirely sure if this is the case. And, and walking is a really, it, it's really, from, from a scientific point of view, it's an activity that we are really interested in for many reasons. First of all, it's the, it's the primary way of us getting around, unless you're wheelchair bound. Just mm. the way you get into your car, that's the way you go to the kitchen to have some food and whatnot. So mm. that's our kind of um, fundamental way of locomotion is walking. And the hope has been, I guess, is that we could, could use walking as a way to standardize this method. So instead of using the same category thresholds, puddles, for different individuals, we could perhaps use walking and standardize our physical activity to walking. How much? How many minutes do you do that's more vigorous than you're walking? And how many minutes are you less vigorous? For example, that, that could be one way of looking at it. Or, or let's say uh, in multiples of your walking, your preferred walking pace. Mm. Mm. And, and so that's something we've been really interested in. Um, one of our professors, Diabini, who I also work with, yeah. she, she's been really interested in the topic. And she's now made, made some headway in this space um, with Aero Actually, you know Aero's mm. done. Yeah. Um, and so what Aero found in young kids is that it's, it's not actually reflective of your physical capabilities. So it turns out that what your preferred walking pace may actually be a personal preference. So it, it may be a poor choice for standardization, which is it's kind of sad news for us. We were, so we were all up and about and I thought we, we now we solved the issue of, of subjective and uh, objective kind of physical activity. So subjective mm -hmm. meaning that we are relating your physical activity to your capability, and therefore we should start using your physical activity to start making guesses on to whether it's going to cause a positive or a negative physiological adaptation. 
but it's, it's now starting to look that that's not the case. Uh, but but of course the, the issue is not settled. This is just this is very early. We haven't even published this yet. Yeah, yeah. I I think we tried the same when we were doing studies with EMG muscle activity that. You usually normalize it for the maximum voluntary contraction, but then we looked at could we actually normalize it to standing or standing on one leg, but there was too much variability because you can you can actually stand in many different ways. Yeah. Even though outside it looks the same, you might be using more your quadriceps, your hamstrings, so so that didn't really work. And then we were thinking that all right, maybe a squat, but there's even more variability. It's it's actually People do it so different ways, and and, and difficulty of, of getting the, what is the what is the knee angle. It depends also on the on the angle of the ankle. Yeah. Like so, it's it, it it didn't really work. We we stick with the with the MVC, but maybe hopefully you will have better luck. With I think it's it's a good idea to kind of also have more subjective objective i don't know <laughs> if that's a word like I, I guess individualized yeah or kind of personal or more uh, more calibration yeah that's that's something really interesting to look at and another thing i was thinking that you have an actrometer on the thorax could you actually look like balance from there well that's i i haven't personally um, used it for balance and i don't think i will either but I've seen some work being done, and, and they are sufficiently sensitive to detect this way. So mm -hmm. potentially, yes. Yeah. Um, the reason I haven't spent any effort on it is I'm not a big fan of static posturography, which is this. So the, what you're describing is called static posturography. But what it means is you're standing still and remeasuring how much you sway. Mm. And um, it, it does have it, it has some predictive power. So it, uh, there are some studies showing that those with more sway are more prone to fall over, mm. but it, it's it, it's a to me it's a poor way of predicting how prone you are to have a fall. Yeah, yeah, I I remember in one one project we were measuring young and old people balance, and basically the result was that the the older had the better balance. Yeah, well, well <laughs> but basically, basically the thing was that they were taking the task more seriously and they were actually concentrating while the young were just standing on a plate and, and thinking something else. Right, and that's one of my issues with the test. Exactly, it has a U-shaped curve, so so young individuals. And then the idea is exactly like this. we don't have to worry about falling over when we're standing upright as young individuals. But another individual, let's say you've got some problems with your balance, so, so your vestibular organ is sending you the incorrect signal, mm. you are now actually concerned about falling over, maybe you've got vertigo over. Mm. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I don't like it. Having said that, there, there are a lot of variables I personally use and other people use as well that have this U-shape or J-shape curve mm. where an increased um, value might actually not be a bad thing or a good thing. And I, mm. I think one of the examples we've been grappling with just recently is on heart rate variability. So, in young adults, the higher variability you've got in your heart rate, the better it's considered, you're in better condition. Mm -hmm. But um, we are measuring, with, with the device on the thorax, it also measures a one-lead electrocardiography, uh, mm -hmm. electrocardiogram, and so we get heart rate variability out of that as well. Mm -hmm. And what we found is there are a lot of individuals with arrhythmias, and arrhythmia is going to throw your 
heart rate variability to a very high level, which mm. is of course not indicative of good health. Yeah, 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 naturally. So, yeah, and you said that about static balance. Uh, have you have you thought of looking the? I don't know if you call it balance of walking or the, the strain I, I have, of the movement of the body. Yep, yep, not in those terms, but but yes, the idea is the same. So what? And, and this is what I, what I, one of the things I proposed in in the uh, finding application that just got approved. And, and there's a little bit of evidence to this. So I, I already mentioned the dual task paradigm and looking at gait variability and how that's predictive of cognitive impairment. So it turns out that if you ask people to wear an accelerometer for seven days, and then you go back to that data and try and with some some kind of algorithm detect the uh, continuous periods of time when they were walking, so bouts of walking, mm-hmm. and you analyze the complexity of those um, phrases, you'll find that those with higher complexity, I think it may, may, may not be lower complexity, I can't actually now remember mm-hmm. which way it was, um, are more likely to develop cognitive impairment mm-hmm. in, in the upcoming two, two years. Yeah. And so, so that's what I'm very keen to do. Um, I started some of the work and it's based on the fact that uh, the, the way we can be fairly confident that it's actually a walking bound is by looking at the posture. So that's one way they need to be upright, otherwise they're, they're clearly not walking. Mm-hmm. And then we combine that with the not only the intensities of the walking, but we can also look at the frequency content of the signal. So we know that the, if a person is walking, the they're going to take between 60 and 120 steps per minute. Mm. So therefore, we must have a, a fundamental frequency content between that range. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's, it can't be walking. At the same time, we know that when people start jogging or running, their um, step rate goes up to what, between 150 and above. Mm. So, so that's what how we can take walk, or set, tell walking apart from running. There's other ways as well related mm. to intensity. But I don't want to use the intensity measures because there's such a wide range of variability in, in the intensities we find when people are walking depending on if they're um, in a really good condition or in a really bad condition. But step rates are going to be within that 60 to 120 range if you're walking. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. And about the dual task, I was thinking, like, could you actually somehow know from the data that they are having a dual task? I'm thinking, like, you know, if there would be, for example, a microphone right. or, or, or accelerometer that would detect that when they are, for example, talking, right. that you would actually know that now they are talking and walking, and then you could look like the changes in the in the walking variables. Right, right. That would be that be really really interesting. At the moment, we're not there. But in my case, I have no way of knowing whether it's why why they're walking because why they're walking is a really important question. Oh, in determining 
your walking velocity, in determining variability as well. So what's their right? second task that we're undertaking on that? Mm. I, I don't have answers to these questions. What you suggested is something that, a, a way of potentially doing it. Mm. But I have actually heard of a study where people wore a, a um, medallion, camera medallion, mm. which took yeah. a um, yeah. photo every, was it five minutes? Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, that, so there are, people have, uh, tried this. Um, people have signed up to as volunteers for these sorts of experiments, but uh, I think this, from practical point of view, it's it's a little bit problematic to be recording the some someone's like audio around a person twenty four seven or taking a continuous stream of video. Um, so some, some people <laughs> might sign up for that. I personally would not sign up for that. Yeah, yeah, I I can easily see that. Yeah, I, I'm thinking like also maybe having an accelerometer on the wrist, maybe you could detect when when the person is holding a phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you could know that now it's again a dual task. If so, uh, I, I I find it really interesting that actually when you just start to look like the data, you can detect so many things from really uh, data streams that you wouldn't expect that from a microphone you can get actually yeah. quite many things and. And like for example, Suto is using the compass that when you actually swim and you make a turn, you can you can count laps yeah. in a swimming pool from the compass. It's like ah yeah, of course. So I, I, it's it's just really really interesting what you can get out of data when you look just deep enough. Right, and and this yeah, there is so so first of all we got different sensors. We got GPS, compass, or magnetometer, um, accelerometer, gyroscope. We could be measuring electrical activity, like heart rate, mm. uh, muscle activity. And then, of course, there's the question of how many sensors are we wearing. So, like, like I mentioned, if you have one on your wrist, you can start figuring out, that, and this has already been done. From a wristborne device, you can, uh, provided that you, it's always worn the same way, mm. you can differentiate between having your arm flat. So now you're probably typing, you're mm. doing some sort of your drawing, something akin to that. If it's pointed down, Mm. Then you know that they're upright most likely, or they're sitting with their hands down for some reason. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one of the things you can do with just accelerometers. But if you make this inertial measurement unit, so inertial measurement unit has an accelerometer, but it also has a gyroscope, and it's it's very often also coupled with a magnetometer. And when you have these three different um, sensors in the same unit, you can then tell the orientation of the device uh, to a very high degree of accuracy. On any given point in time, mm. so now you're starting to know the the absolute orientation of let's say a segment of your body, mm. and if you had one in each segment, so you had one in the forearm, another one on the upper arm, you could then compare the orientation of the um, segments, and then you get the joint angle. Mm. And now um, going back to we don't really know what people are actually doing when we see a particular level of acceleration from the waist. If you instead of having that, you have the posture. Of the body to mm. let's say 10 degree um, precision of all of the joints in your body, mm. you'd, you'd be you'd have really educated guesses as to what they're doing. So if you're pedaling, you'd, you'd see the um, legs pedaling away. So that's that's cycling. So it's either stationary or on the actual bicycle. Walking would be very easy to detect. Running would be easy. So so there's a lot of things you could start detecting. Dual tasking that's that's a difficult one. Mm. Uh, but, but certainly, let's say you're walking hand in hand with someone, that would show up in, in your 
in the posture of your body or if you're holding your um, phone to your ear, that type of mm. stuff. So potentially you'd, you'd get a little bit more insight. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely, entirely sure people are willing to sign up for that <laughs> or whether they really sign up for that or not. That's one of the things I've, I've um, um, pitched or I've submitted as a grant application to the Academy of Finland in the past. Um, they, they, weren't, they didn't see the value in it, unfortunately. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's been very interesting, interesting talks, talks and and is there something like you have been doing research quite quite a long time and and you know not everything fits into scientific publications, but you have probably learned quite many lessons doing research. Is there something you want to share, do's or don'ts for for <laughs> with other researchers? It can be small things with uh, doing studies with accelerometers or with funding applications that. That you would like to like to share. Well, then, uh, I think there's there'd be a lot that I'd like to share, but I, I I stick to my favorite topic, which is numerical analysis. Yeah. And one of the things, so so this is this may be particular to sports science, but what I found is a lot of people don't actually do their numerical analysis themselves, and because they don't do numerical analysis, it seems like they they think that uh, numbers just fall from the sky, or, or this was done by pixies or fairies. Mm. Which is of course not the case, there's always a human <laughs> being who developed some sort of algorithm. Yeah. And that algorithm can be really bad. And, and unfortunately, the more algorithms you take a look at, the more bad ones you find. And the, the one I just stumbled upon very recently was on respawn accelerometry. So, from, again, from accelerometry we typically are interested in um, energy consumption, mm. and so and that's precisely what I was looking at. I was looking at um, the literature, going through the literature, and trying to find equations or approaches to estimate um, energy consumption based on the accelerometer signal. Mm. I, I found a few relatively new ones. One of them was machine uh, learning based neural network algorithm, and they made it available to scientists, so you can pop your own data in it and you get energy consumption estimates. Mm. And um, they, they had three different options there. So one was for completely agnostic to the orientation of the device. That's the one I ended up using for a very good reason. But they also provided um, a version where it took a look at the three different dimensions in the, uh, independently. So it took a look at the x acceleration, y, and z acceleration. Mm. And the assumption, the built implicit assumption is that those axes are in the same order with respect to a risk as they were in the data set that was used to train the model. Mm. We actually used a different brand of accelerometers compared to the, the one that was developed on, and this was immediately obvious to me that this is a caveat that might have implications. <laughs> and of course it turned out that the acceleration, the axes were different between our brand and the other brand, yeah. and therefore the energy estimate were completely different. So, so we were seeing like uh, six times so based on energy consumption overnight when they were asleep. This was all caused by the axis. Mm. Maybe, maybe people were happy with this feedback that they, they were doing enough vigorous activity. <laughs> I didn't provide this feedback, so I, I used the agnostic. And, and that's probably why they provided that um, direction agnostic version, because they, they realized it. But it's, it's seldom spoken about. It, it wasn't obvious from the paper that you should never ever use their direction-dependent um, version, unless you had the same brand, or 
if your the, the device you're using happens to have the same acceleration axis. Mm. Yeah. But, but that's by, by far not the only example. So while I was going through this, I also used a regression equation, which was based on, it's called ENMO, E-N-M-O, so Euclidean norm minus one. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, um, so in, in the past, what we had from accelerometers, we only got counts. So this was based on one company called the Actigraph. Mm-hmm. And they were the first to market with these physical activity measurement devices you could utilize without knowing how to do analysis. Mm-hmm. And they provided counts. So they provided, I think that it probably was for every second you got a count value. Mm-hmm. But the count doesn't actually mean anything, it's an arbitrary unit. Okay, so, so that's the history of it. Then other people flocked to the market with products to measure accelerometry, but they can't produce the same counts the Actigraph produces because they, that's a proprietary algorithm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not public how to produce counts, so you can't produce them. Mm. So therefore people thought, okay, we better come up with a way that's independent of which device you use to record your acceleration. And so people came up with this NMO value. And, and what it is, is we've got three-dimensional acceleration, you measure a value of 1.1 on the um, x-axis, a mm. zero on the y, a zero on the z, mm. oh, and you, you take the um, Diagonal, so, so you square all of these values something together and take the square root, mm. and that's your norm. That's your that's a Euclidean norm. Mm. It's the same as magnitude. There's this many names for it. That's what it is. And then you take one off from that value, and that's your NMO. Mm-hmm. This works if you've got perfectly calibrated devices. So they read 1G when they're stationary, mm. but most devices don't read 1G when they're stationary. So they might read 1.1. And so that's what happened. And, and it, it's also Axis specific. So while you're stationary, we've always got poor gravity. Mm-hmm. And now, if my z axis is less sensitive than my x axis, it means that my NMO value will be different when x axis is up compared to z axis up. And so this, that's what happened with the wrist-worn accelerometers we were using, and it, it then resulted in four mets, four multiples of metabolic energy rate being indicated overnight when the people were. Asleep. So it, it makes such a big difference. It makes a huge difference. Because what we um, what we're looking at when we are accumulating acceleration. So, so first of all, what we do is we'll take uh, let's say sixty seconds of acceleration mm. for each recorded data point. We calculate the magnitude or the Euclidean norm. Mm. Then we take the mean of those values. If we got a static or like a DC component. Um, direct current component mm-hmm. that's offset by 0.1 in order to match that with a um, oscillating signal, which is what we normally have. So normally we have oscillation around the 1G mm-hmm. when we're walking. In order to match a 0.1 value with oscillations, we need to actually have our peaks, peaks that are like 2Gs and troughs that are close to 0G. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that requires uh, vigorous walking. And hence, we get uh, four minutes with a DC component that's actually quite small. All right. So basically, quite many accelerometers are not calibrated correctly. Or, or why do you get this wrong value? That, that's precisely what it is. They're not yeah. calibrated. Some uh, manufacturers are more explicit about not having calibrated them than others. So sometimes it's difficult to find out whether they've been calibrated or not. But it's very easy to test. Just pop it on the t- table, record for five seconds and turn it um, 
at 90 degrees in, in a different mm. orientation and you find out whether it's calibrated or not. All right, that's that's very interesting. Have you published anything? <laughs> no, no, so, so you, you asked about unpublished findings. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think and, that's really uh, important. Like, uh, and, and this affects more to the count-based calculations or... Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, okay, going back to what you can do to avoid this effect is mm -hmm. instead of using the NMO value, you filter your data first. So you you high pass filter. High pass filtering mm -hmm. takes away the direct conduct, so the constant component, and so therefore it's all zeros when it's stationary. Um, and, and so so this is so to to my knowledge there are two proposed ways of doing um, or quantifying accelerations into like physical activity. So one is NMO and the other is mean amplitude deviation. Mm. Um, and the mean amplitude deviation, the, the mean part there means that we take off the DC component first and then we look at the amplitude, the deviation from that mean. And so now any calibration inaccuracies are taken away by the, subtracting the mean. Mm. All right, I, I would recommend publishing usually this kind of method papers with quite a lot of. Yeah, no, reference. so, so it's, it's, it's a known phenomenon. So the, this NMO problem has been pointed out by someone, I can't remember who it was. All right, yeah, uh, probably not many people have read it. And, and <laughs> I think the bigger issue is not understood it. So even yeah. if you were ready, you might not understand that this actually makes a big, big difference to what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Now that's very interesting. Yeah. So we've been talking one hour. I think it's it's good time to wrap it up. It it was it was a pleasure to talk with you. It was it was very very interesting discussions, and maybe we have another another episode of podcast when you have have some some results from your from your interesting study. So let's let's see. Thank you for being here. Yeah. No worries. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by Fibia. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.